Hello and welcome to the spiritual travels of a firewolf. This is Christy. It is Wednesday, January the 19th, 2022. What is up? I am going to do a Mercury retrograde storytelling session today because I just felt you know during mercury retrograde we do go back in time a little bit and it does give us the ability to go back into the past and to retell that story to give that story an ability to no longer have power over you so today i'm gonna talk about jobs and i'm gonna talk about Um, Because our Mercury retrograde is still in the sign of Aquarius, and we did have a Saturn almost conjunction, not quite a conjunction with the full moon, and because Venus is also in retrograde in the sign of Capricorn, you know, there is a lot of energy around our value and around our jobs and around the worker, you know really what what it means to be a capitalist in this world aka capricorn so or saturnian so i wanted to kind of dig into the class of 2008 for those who graduated college at that time or the generation of like 1985, 1986, 87, who kind of has had a really raw deal when it came to leaving college during an economic recession and kind of figuring out their way in the world. And I feel like, you know, I am whatever is considered like an elder millennial or whatever the term is, generation X. No, I don't think I'm dead. I don't remember what the fuck I am. But anyway, um, and I've been thinking about this all day. I was like, well, what am I going to, I'm going to do a solo podcast. And it occurred to me, you know, January 18th has been a very important day. I think, you know, numbers follow us around and for everybody, certain dates follow us around. And for me, the 18th of the month is pretty is usually pretty important and significant and january 18th has always kind of brought me significant changes so and it happened last year as well and this year i was kind of reflecting on them to the point of being like well i hope that what i say is helpful you know, I, I kind of realized, you know, a lot of what I've, I was going on stage in 2020 and yelling, you know, in, in towns like Tucson or, fl- not Flagstaff, but near, out near Flagstaff or Morgan, Utah or Salt Lake City, Utah or Greeley, Colorado or, you know, 29 Palms, uh, whatever, uh, Wonder Valley, California, where, you know, there's a different mindset and mid pandemic when I was on the road or even Oklahoma city or even Fort Worth, you know, these are towns where 
I met with people who were raw and real and wanted to laugh even mid-pandemic. And a lot of the bars that I went to, you know, nobody had masks on. Nobody had... The, the vaccine wasn't even out. And I should say jab, I guess, at this point. But it's like, you know, one of the things that I was met with were people who really wanted to just connect and talk about what was going on in life. This has nothing to do with my job in, t- in 2010, but, you know, I met people who would just be like, wait, you're on the road full time and just hand me cash for gas money. Like to say, thank you for supporting freedom. Thank you for supporting your dream. You know, thank you for, and I, I've never met that kind of kindness in that way before. And from people who didn't even have Facebook accounts so I could find them and thank them. You know, these were genuine fucking people who just wanted to go laugh and and, and talk after the show. And that is the shit that you cannot get from a Netflix comedy special. You can't get that from somebody's Instagram following, you can't, some of the, as I said, a lot of these people didn't even have social media, like, if you speak to people, like, I met this couple in Greeley, Colorado, who were, like, a husband and wife, and the wife had a quote-unquote Facebook, and it was just, like, she barely used it, I went to go find them, and I couldn't, and the husband was, like, oh, yeah, my wife does that, you know, and it's not, like, it's not like things that you can even explain to, I guess, the corporatization of stand-up comedy at this fucking point. And it's, I think so deeply, it's like, why did, I, I've really gotten back to like the why factor. Why did I start doing stand-up comedy? Was it to, I mean, Instagram didn't even start popping until about, a year into comedy, a year and a half in, and I didn't even get on Instagram until later. Um, and still, to this day, I have a really hard time because I know we have to convert to online, but what do I love is I love going on the road, and I love this one little club it's out in California that has always been my mecca and I love the fact that I can still allow those dreams to sit in my heart but also know that I've got a lot more work to do before I could even be considered good at this anymore and what I need to do is go back to that connection and it's very interesting because I've had you know my friend Kristen talk about heart coherence I'm in in that work and and uh, you know there's several it's not that it's just Kristen I mean I've mentioned on here there are several people in the community of spirituality even in Catholicism even in you know there's a plethora of there's the conspiracy community all speaking of this war that we're in and 
I know that a lot of it's being geared toward, well, just put your material online and figure out how to be online, but I honestly think that it's going underground and figuring how to do bars underground. I mean, I've, I was in Greeley, like, I'm bringing it back to the show, Greeley, Colorado, last, in 2020, end of 2020, was it end of 2020? I think it was end of 2020, where I think I was in a bar of maybe 10 people, and I drove an extra two, three out, three hours to get there from Denver, because the city of Denver was closing down, and I had had a paid gig already um, booked, I had already driven however many hours from 29 Palms, California, through snowy weather, it wasn't terrible snow, but, and got about two hours out, and when I was two hours out from Denver, I got the text that the, the gig was being canceled, and I was still going to get paid for it, and then I just went online and found another show, and asked if I could get on, and they gave me 20 minutes, and that's what I love, and that's what I forgot about, and it's been, it's been a, it's been the goal that I have, and for those who have stuck with this podcast since the beginning, and since the saga of losing my car, you know, money has, has been, for the last seven years of my life, a source of the biggest guilt and shame that I have ever had, and here's why. I was given everything that I could from my family in that they sacrificed a lot in their lives to be very good healthcare workers. We sacrificed almost every holiday that I ever grew up in, watching both parents work all the holidays, taking care of patients, and us as a small family unit figuring out what holidays actually were, and still my mom had presents and still we figured it out, and still ended, figured out how to go to church, and, you know, figured out things with the grandparents, and I watched my grandma die, you know, both of them technically, but, you know, of pancreatic cancer when I was 10, and how that happened over Christmas holiday, and how my mom still had to take care of patients, and take care of her mom, and I still had to go to school, these are the kinds of things I'll never let go of, and now that I'm older, I'm an only child, I have a lot of responsibility, and these last seven years, I've, I went so hard in the paint with stand-up that everything else fell apart, um, to the point of almost bankruptcy in 2015, which is still on my record for credit. So, yes, and that's a real thing that almost happened for me. And it's a source of shame and guilt and led to a lot of self-sabotage and a lot of making the wrong decisions, dating the wrong people, dating the wrong men who um, I just felt like I didn't deserve any better, um, and continuing the cycle of almost like abuse towards myself, and so I'm in the middle, I moved to Austin, 
I moved to Austin where a big shame thing happened for me last year on this date. Well, now it's whatever time in the morning, 1.10, but for a lot of comics, it's not a big deal. For me, it's a big deal because when I decided that I was going to go so hard in 2020 on the road into 2021, I was going so hard that, you know, my car broke down several times. I had to get so much, you know, I carried my charger and everything in the car for the car, but, and I was as self-sufficient as possible. I had my car set up like a little, like a mini living unit. I had, you know, my bedding that I tucked in. Like, I tried to make it so that I couldn't be like, people couldn't walk by the car and be like, she lives in her car. It generally kind of looked like somebody was just traveling um, just for safety reasons. But I did like use two Instacart which were really for the Instacart that I was driving, but I, I converted them into how I would, like, carry my bath. I had, like, bath and body in one. So, like, my shampoo and um, makeup and everything in one of my little Instacart, like, grocery um, thingy-doos, like, refrigerated bags. And then the other one was for food. And I figured out, like, meals-wise, like, what I could do meals-wise. So I'd always carry, like, packets of oatmeal that you could just put water in. Or just jars of peanut butter and, like, you know, a loaf of bread with, like, anytime you go into a gas station or anything, you just pick up, like, extra spoons and napkins and stuff like that. And then you have extra silverware in your car with you. And, like... I didn't tell my family, so I was kind of doing this as a means of, like, it was a secret because I wanted to, A, prove to myself that I could do it, but B, I thought that, you know, a lot of the shit that I was spitting on stage is not stuff that I'll put on Instagram. I'll try it on Twitter, but nobody sees. It's like, Twitter is, for me, like, you know, I don't even think anybody sees my Twitter. I don't even think a person reads my Twitter. It's, so it's it's tough, like, when you're a comic and you're out there and you're like, hey, I see what's going on in the world. I have a lot to say and I have a lot of experience in science. I might not be a PhD. I might not be an MD. But there's a lot of shit going on that I feel like we should all laugh about. And it wasn't until I got to Greeley, Colorado that I felt like everybody was on the same page of all walks of life too. Like it's actually kind of a funky little like farm town meets college town and there's like all different types of people there and everybody was vibing and I was like, oh my god, I found I found my audience. It was the first time in my life where I was like, this is it. And then when I went to Morgan, Utah, it was the same thing. All walks of life, all ages, you know, from like cougar grandmothers, like in sweaters, <laughs> and like horse sweaters, 
you know, just going out to have a good time, to, like, comics, to just drinking dudes, you know, and everybody was vibing, and it was the first time in my life that I found my stride and stand up, and when I made a mistake, I didn't listen to my intuition, and the same thing happened with, you know, I should have just stayed on the road, I should have just passed through Austin at the time, or even if I had stayed in Austin, I should have not pushed to be on a show like Kill Tony, in that I could have done better for myself, and I know that's weird to say, because it's like the biggest show right now, and everybody's on it, but that's not my vibe anymore, it's it's tough when people come up to you and they're like, oh, there's the tarot card reader and you want to be like, I have a whole, like, boxes of journals of written material, jokes, roast jokes, everything that I've done in little rooms, in bars, without video cameras, and none of it had to do with tarot cards. Now, Christian Northrup is a doctor... She's kind of been put on the banned list, but she's an OBGYN, and she has a book, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, and I was listening to, kind of, I'm on her Telegram channel because she's been banned from Instagram, and then she's basically been flagged on all social media, so she, like, has a Telegram, and she, like, basically uploads podcasts on there. And on one of her podcasts, she was talking about having tarot cards at like a Christian event where she was going to speak about medical freedom. And she had left them. I guess they fell out of her bag and like the Christian women like in the room like freaked out and they called her and they're like, oh my God, we found your tarot cards. And she's like, can you send them back? And they're like, we actually threw them away. Um... And she went into, like, this sort of explanation to people that, you know, tarot cards are not, like, your power, meaning, like, they are not, they're your intuition being displayed. So I can pick the same card that somebody else picks, but it's the intuition based upon either whether you want to read it as the psychic reading of that or of the higher power of that, your higher power of that, or your psychological higher mind, however you want to look at it, there's wisdom to be found in the tarot card, however that wisdom's in fucking side of you, so tarot is a language, astrology is a language, these are tools to actually speak to what we already have within us, and so is comedy, and the language that I spoke of intuition had nothing to do with stand-up comedy before I even started it. It had to do with animals. And it had to do with working with animals all my life in the horse industry. And how I wrote that off for, it's been 12 years, you know, give or take. Um, because when my horse died, a part of me died. A part of me, a part of my brain got cut off and the closest I felt to being on a horse again was being on stage telling jokes I never intended to be in front of an audience or to build an Instagram following I I, I don't even think I I don't even know how 
I don't even know if that's my fate, you know. It might just be a couple of these little podcasts a week and me trying to carve out my own tour schedule for the rest of my life. And you know what? And have this little day job that I have. Who knows? I don't know. But I know that I've made mountains move in the time that I've been a comic. Miracles have happened in the time I've been a comic. I have met the best of friends. I've been the biggest of fights. I've been the biggest... I've had to really test my... This comedy tests you like an athlete. Um, Now, it can damage your body, which I'm also, you know, having to work really, really hard on and also not, you know, like making mistakes with that too. But it's all about balance right now. So... January 18th, 2010 was a really pivotal date for me. When I had my horse, Louie, you know, I had him for a really long time. He was intended to be a show horse. He had a series of accidents where it left him sort of with, I don't know if it was a damaged nerve We weren't really ever quite able to figure out what it was, but his left hind leg would just go into spasms every once in a while. And he flipped over a truck in a way that he shouldn't have survived from what I was told um, when I was at school. Um, He was getting shod, which led to me changing up his um, schedule at the farrier, which is horseshoe, um, throughout his life with me and changing his farrier altogether. Um, funny enough, it was somebody who owns a farm, um, called Full Moon Farm, which is a, which is still a operating show facility in Maryland. (laughs) Um, but I had to really kind of I was 14 or 15, 14, 15, and when I was 15, you know, it was my first, the horse world is very weird because it's kind of like this very insulated world, it's very similar to stand-up comedy, it's kind of a cult, and there's different cults within that world, so there's people that are jumping, riding, there's people that are racers, there's different types of jumping riders, there's different types of racing riders. There's different types of people. Like I did three-phase eventing, also known as three-day eventing, but that's more advanced, um, more Olympic sport level, to be very general with that. Um, and something called dressage, which is uh, kind of like, quote-unquote, ballet with horses, but it's more martial arts, in my opinion. And so... When I got my horse, it was as a result of me breaking my back and my mom kind of freaking out and being like, you know, you need something safe. Um, My trainers had been like, it's time for you to get your own. I had been working my ass off after school and, you know, every day throughout the summer. I never really think I ever took a day off. I realized when I went to college, like, 
it wasn't until my sophomore year of college I, re- I had my first burnout and I took a summer off and I got and really and by summer off I still worked certain days of the week but I didn't work every day and um it was kind of the f- the f- and then anyway but I learned very quickly in the horse world about and I look back and I'm like damn I was really young and there were a lot of adults around me with zero boundaries because you're a kid amongst adults who are you know a lot of the successful riders are you know older and by older I mean my age now I'm not you know my mouth is not appropriate you know this podcast is not appropriate for anybody you know this is a you know, R-rated podcast, and I do that for a reason, because, you know, a lot of horse trainers are not really meant to be around people that, like, I don't know, it's kind of hard to explain, because it's like, it really taught me a lot, but at the same time, it's like, it's just a world where you grow up really quick, you just grow up, and in certain ways, you're held back because you're in this very insulated world, and everybody speaks that language. Everybody speaks the language of horses, so it's always about the horse and the rider, and it it can even get really like snooty and gossipy because there's a lot of extremely wealthy people in riding. Like I've I've ridden, I think I've spoken about this before, but I've ridden against. Um, a previous owner of the Redskins, her, their granddaughter, um, I know Georgina Bloomberg was, she, she went to the Olympics, but she was a jumper, but at the time she was still a hunter, um, um, who else, there's a lot of, like, Wall Street people and horseback riding, their kids, and I'm trying to think, oh, Paige Johnson, uh, BET owner's daughter, uh, you know, you're, there's senators and stuff like that, but, uh, there's a lot of wealthy people in, in, um, horseback riding, and I've, I even worked for a steeplechase farm that was a very small steeplechase farm, but they owned, like, a branch of a bank, um, for the East Coast, and they had, like, an estate, and it was gorgeous, and I, that was one of my weekend jobs, um, in college was I mucked their stalls, I fed their horses, I turned out their horses, and they had gorgeous steeplechase horses. So I did I've done a lot in the horse industry and I've seen a lot in the horse industry and a lot of that led me into, you know, working with non human primates, which, you know, when I went to college, I never thought I would end up in a military contract lab. And I'm going to be extremely clear. I was never a member of the military. I am a, I am a family member of military, and I worked for military contract labs. What that means is I was under basically the rules of and working for um, military experiments, uh, and they basically technically quote-unquote signed the check at the end of the day really but it was the university I worked for that signed the check at the end of the day so or the organization that I worked for as well so 
I never thought that I would end up in the labs that I ended up in. And in 2008-9, I ended up in a lab that I've spoken up, spoken about way too many times. And I still had my horse at the time. And I... I was so burned out from that job. I got so sick physically, and a lot of people got sick physically, and I'm not going to speculate, but I did find out that a coworker had passed on over the pandemic, and I have a lot of questions about what we were maybe exposed to, um, things like that, you know, and... The PPE that we wore is very similar to what where we all see now on TV. Masks, I wore goggles, um, scrubs, and then like overcoats. And then the second lab, which I'll be talking about as well. But from the first lab, I was like getting so sick. I was, and I ended up having to get surgery um, from an ovarian cyst that had twisted um, around, I guess, my fallopian tube. And the OBGYN said it was the size of a grapefruit. And I was 22 years old. And I was like, how the fuck did that happen? Like, and I had been walking around with that and just being mad that I wasn't able to run as long as I used to run. Because I was like running till, you know, I would run, run, run. And um, I was like having a lot of problems with my right hip. It just kept clicking and clicking. I didn't realize I had a giant cyst in there. Um, and I was still riding horses and I was still doing everything. I was still mucking, I was still mucking stalls. Um, and the way that I muck stalls, like we even had like a, a shredder. So (laughs) the jankiest part of farms is like, you could be on a nice farm and there's still a little jank to it. So I was on a nice farm, but our jank was one of the stalls opened up to the muck shredder, which is fancy if you are from a barn that packs out, like, that basically packs out waste. Um, but if you have a shredder, that's pretty fancy in my opinion. So, or a spreader, excuse me. Um, so to get to the spreader, it was parked behind a stall that had a back door and it was on a height. So, (laughs) The manager of the barn took a piece of plywood and put it like almost like a plank walk, like you're fucking jumping off a pirate ship into this spreader. So you had to be really careful not to kill yourself. And you had to take basically a giant muck tub or the muck tubs and get them over and walk the plank and then dump them. And hopefully, and there was like space between. So if you fell, you had like a three and a half foot drop. And it's just like the janky things that you do when you take care of horses. It's so crazy. Like I've done the craziest shit with shit. Like it's the craziest shit to help clean up shit. It's like, oh my God, that's not even the craziest shit story. But it's just like, that was just every weekend. Like, you know, you work a full time week schedule and then you're with the horse in the evening, and then on the weekends you're mucking stalls, feeding horses, setting up feed, doing it all over and over again, making sure they got their hay, making sure, oh, heaven forbid, the weather's fucked up, making sure they have the right blanket on. It's, you gotta love it, but 
It's the love. It's just like comedy. It's for the fucking love. It's a full-time gig. And, uh, you know, that was my life. Uh, and I'm working this horrific job. I mean, when they would start studies, primates would drop like fucking flies. You just watch this primate that you're taking care of and you're taking their vitals and they're like connecting with you, giving you like holding your finger, you know, then you have to jab them with fucking ketamine so that you can get them out of their cage. They're limp and you're putting fucking shit in their ass and like to take their temperature and you're taking their weight and they're passed out and you're asking yourself the whole time, is this right? Is this really, like, is this ethical? Is this why I spent four years studying, you know, the ethics of science and in a lab looking at, you know, chemicals? I don't know. But one of the things is when I... Um, I left that lab and I took a good three months and I, for the first time I was in like this fraternity called Alpha Phi Omega and one of, I guess my brothers, cause it's co-ed and of course they call us brothers, um, was kind of leaving New York city for a couple months to go upstate and I, through a friend, got an offer to stay at their place so I had I left the first primate job I had just enough money to kind of go back and forth between Maryland and New York City and I gave myself a good three months and I went up to New York and only a few people knew and I was working on a music project and I took auditions I took the weirdest auditions I took auditions singing auditions for groups in people's apartments in their living rooms. I did open mics every Sunday at something called EOW, end of the week, which is a rap open mic, and I sang with that. And I sang at weird, like, little places. I went to a little rap, I went to a lot of the, like, hip-hop rap open mics, and every single Sunday and every, pretty much every Tuesday, I was at this specific place um, and did rap open mics and sang backtracks for a specific rapper. So I don't know how that became something in my life. And there's only like one piece of evidence on YouTube for that. But for those three months, I was able to like exercise my voice and hear my voice for the first time and actually be creative in a different way. And it really opened my mind to New York City. And I was like, well, I have Louie, I have my horse. I'm not going to leave the city. And uh, I moved back uh, and started working on the farm again. And this time I didn't have a job, you know, an outside day job. And I just said to Louie, I was like, bro, like, we're, I'm your mom, basically. I've got this much money. I'm going to work it out. And I just kept applying to jobs, applying to day jobs, applying to day jobs. And I was like, I've got this horse to take care of. Um, I need to back up there. I had had enough saved to take care of him um, for those three months. So basically, um, I had rent for him saved for the three months that I paid ahead of time. Uh, if he needed shoes, I went down 
on the bus and I stood with him to get his shoes um and what else would he have needed and I oh and I stacked up his feed so that he had enough feed for when I was gone too um and I would make sure I would go back and forth um which you know Maryland to New York I know that three hour trip so well I know it in the back of my hand and even to this day if I see three hours like oh I've got three hours left of work all I can think of is you've got a mega bus ride <laughs> left you've got a China the, the what is it the uh there's a Chinatown bus out of uh there's a Baltimore comedy factory I don't even remember if it's still there and it's out of the parking lot it's like a hotel and the Chinatown bus would be like right across the street and I would take that bus 40 no it was 20 bucks 20 bucks cash to uh to basically Madison Square Garden or Penn Station and I would take that bus I had taken that bus so many times it smelled like piss there was just like death in that bus it was just like nope put on your headphones keep it moving <laughs> you got shit to do um but I know that ride so well. I think I've taken that bus like a thousand times. I'm not even, I'm pretty sure it's like the numbers are up there. But um, yeah, I, I moved back to from New York in 2009 with Louie. Or I, I, was, I was looking to move him. I had been calling farms around New York. And I was like, well, I could live like in a sort of suburby area. I'll find like an apartment complex and I'll keep him in like a farm up here. And I was calling around like maybe I can move him and I could do like half city, half country, do like an upstate sort of situation, take the train, still work on music. Um, but it didn't happen because um, on December 5th of 2009, he got into a bad accident and it was really bad um and he it's just one of those things that when I talked to Terry J and I was like is am I gonna talk to my dead horse and she was just like you know if you hadn't taken these 12 years like you could have just started riding and had another horse and I was like I know but it's not where the journey went you know and I think a lot of times horse women, especially, and I don't mean this for dudes, like I know a lot of awesome men in the industry, so horse people um, will sacrifice their whole lives and you'll meet them and they'll be like, we have never really left such and such town. We'll travel for shows, but we'll never leave such and such town. And I do feel like a lot of times people in the horse industry do hold themselves back because you're so afraid to travel for fear something will happen that you'll um not go too far just in case um and and it, it happened to me I was oh, I was in Brazil for school for a couple of weeks and I had a really bad plane ride and my dad told me that the day that my plane had to emergency land my horse colicked the same exact day it's like um, and I wasn't there and I've never not been there 
and the feeling of not being there and not knowing and being in a different country um, is the worst feeling you could ever feel. Um, so he didn't even, I don't even think he told me until I got back to the States. Um, but the fact that like to explain to people, like that's how deep the connection is with your horse. Like every once in a while you get a horse where you cannot explain the connection. Sometimes you don't even need to talk. Like whenever I worked with specific horses, um, there was a horse named Oscar that was his field mate. Um, and him, they had a lot of pain and Louie had a lot of pain in his back left leg. And I would just step, stand back and I learned this from who I would consider an aunt of mine, Aunt Diane, is you stand back and you're like, show me where you hurt. And the way she said it was they'll show you with like yellow, almost like a yellow highlighter, but Louie would point. And, um, to the point that I would stand back and he would lift up his back hind leg and he would put his nose to the exact point where his leg hurt and I would grab that I would go through into that tendon and I would make sure that I don't know what the nerves were doing you know he had had x-rays ultrasounds he had had acupuncture I mean he had his the horse had his own foot I got acupuncture for him you know and massage he had a chiropractor I mean this horse was he went through to explain that to a person outside of the industry, it's so hard to be like, hey, yeah, you know, I work every day and I wear the same clothes, but yeah, my horse has a fucking chiropractor. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's insane, but that's what you do for your horse or your loved one, I guess. Um, and yeah, he's on free-range vitamins. Yeah, I have him t on two different free-range salts because I don't like salt licks. I think they're bad. I, th I don't like their dye and stuff. So anyway. Um, it's just, you know, and GastroGuard before it was GastroGuard. Can a girl say she was ahead of her time? Yes, she can. Okay, so... Um... Let me think. I'm thinking about January 18th. I'm trying to get to this fucking point. So my horse dies. Here's how he died. He... Had a, he had a tough left hind. And it was cold. It was like 40 something degrees. It wasn't like cold. It was that type of like... The weather's changing. It's December... It's one of those days, it was going to snow that night. They were calling for snow, but in Maryland, it's like a mid-humid state. So when they call for it, you never fucking know. It's like either there's a blizzard or there's nothing. Um, and there's like two snowflakes and you're like, they canceled school for two snowflakes. Oh my God. So it's like one of those things where you're just like, okay, I'll get it. Like, I'll figure it out. And I was tired. I was like, it was, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, I've, he, the farrier was out. I was standing with the farrier for him. He was like, yeah, this left hind's looking swollen. I was like, I know I'm going to sweat wrap it tonight. Um, after you're done. And then I put a sign up to not put him out, but the wrong person was working. And normally I'm obsessive compulsive. 
but I worked with everybody at the barn. I knew everybody at the barn. I didn't think, oh, well, they're just going to know Louie has a sweat wrap on to leave him the fuck alone. Don't put him in the field. There's a, there's a, on the whiteboard, I put a sign like, please do not put him out. Um, but the person who was, happened to be working there was new and I don't blame her at all, but I did, I was mad for many years. Um, he was out with a sweat wrap on. Um, my friend Ashley at the time was the manager. She lived on the farm and looked out the window and saw him running around. He slipped, skidded, and she saw him. Um, it was snowing, but it was like light, it was light snow over mud and he slid in the mud and when he slid in the mud, he snapped his, um, cannon bone, which is like his shin in half, like clean in half, like 90 degrees, which for a horse owner, that is the worst diagnosis you could ever have. I've seen hairline fractures survive and that's easily $15,000 surgery. Easily. I mean, easily a hairline fracture on a, a racehorse is easily a $15,000 surgery. Plus they're in a cast for like a year. Plus they're in a sling. Plus they have to stay at the facility for the for the vet for god knows how long so that's 15k down and um plus you know so you're looking at probably vet bills of a hundred thousand and they might they'll probably never race again they might go under saddle it really depends on how it heals and that's for a hairline fracture so a 90 degree angle with bone out of, you know, bone out, plus he dislocated his left hip out of the socket. Uh, so when I saw it in person, I just was like, all right, here we are. Now I'm kind of backed up on this emotionally in that this was a moment in my life where everything completely changed and that's it completely sent me in a different direction of my life. And that's why this is so important. It was It was the first time I worked with crossing over my own loved one in a way that I was like, it was almost like a ceremony. Um, I was not, there were people circled around me the whole time. The entire barn was circled around me. I mean, there were kids all over. There, all of the little ones were there. And I call them the little ones, but they were, they're, they're fully grown now. Um, but it was one of those moments in my life where it was like, I've got to be strong here for these girls. I've got to be strong here for this horse. I've got to be strong here for making this decision because there's no, (laughs) we could do surgery with this. There's zero, we could do surgery with this. Um, with his age, a, he would need, I mean, sir, horses need to stand up and he would not have a fourth leg at the age of 20. Um, you know, 
he would have, I don't know what they would have done. Um, but I had, I had told him a month prior, a horse had died on the farm and I was helping with that situation of colic. It was an older horse. Um, and when I was helping with that, you know, my horse was like out ears up, you know, just watching, you know, what's up? Like they know, and I've, I've helped with a lot of horses dying and usually all the horses are watching. They're all out. They all know animals know, and they know when their friend is leaving and they say goodbye and they don't really like, I've, well, no horses do grieve cause I saw it, but he was just direct eye contacting me. Like just when I was leaving the barn, like I was backing out my car and he was just watching and I stopped and I rolled the window down and I was like, what's up, man? Like, what's going on? Like, what's up? Like, what are you trying to tell me? It was just this weird like moment where him and I were like in this zone together and he was like giving me a message and I got this very strong hit in my stomach and it was November 6th of 2009 that that happened and on December 5th of 2009 his accident happened and I was like damn bro you were on it and like even while he was passing away we were still like talking to each other and he was speaking to me in another language and I had my hand on his like he had a little star and I had my hand over his whole like star and I was just like saying it's you can go you can go you can go in my head but he could hear me and I could hear him and he was speaking to me in Hebrew but I didn't know at the time it was Hebrew I had it confirmed with a friend who who said he was he was saying to life to life to life and like thanking life is what I've gathered over the years like he was thanking you know for having a life and for being on this life um but that moment changed my life and I think about a week later I got a call from NIH to work under a contracted vet tech position with them up at an old quarantine facility in Polesville, Maryland which would take me up near West Virginia and I took that job and I just remember going through the motions and not realizing what PTSD fully or truly was at the time. And I took this job and it was even more horrific than the job I had at the job in Baltimore working with rhesus macaques. In this particular job, they had several different species of primates and it was very quarantined. So we did wear you know, the full Tyvek suits, and I had to have, you know, they, they had to fit me for metal-toed shoes and, or boots, and I wear the rubber metal-toed boots. Um, the labs are quarantined. Each individual lab was quarantined, um, which housed some of them, maybe 10 primates in one little lab, and then some of them had maybe 20, depending on the size of the cages and then there were free range runs too as well of indoor and outdoor runs where primates could kind of run free but then you have to go catch 
them. And I, yes, I have live caught and live released primates. Um, there is an art to it, and I learned how to do it um, mainly because I worked with horses and do- big, big, hairy dogs all my life. Um, primates are when they are not anesthetized and you're catching them are not like the funnest and they can be kind of aggressive but you know I was very good um, at this (laughs) I can rarely say I'm good at things I'm very good at working with wild animals and farm animals Um, and there's a lot to talk about but the job itself was pretty horrific there were different sides to it you know I've, I've definitely spoken about how amputations was like the number one piece of this job and like healing in it healing amputations because they would get into fights and like bite each other's fingers off or pieces of their tail would get caught in the cages because the cages were not to they were regulation cages quote unquote but they were regulation for the government they weren't regulation for like hey we've got a primate in here with a long ass tail that should live in a tree so their long ass tail that should live in a tree would get stuck in the government rusty ass cage and then you'd come in in the morning and be necrotic or bleeding and it would eventually and there's bone there so you have to like amputate that so there's, I mean, there's a lot. There's pluses, you know, there's pluses and minuses to every job. Um, I love animals. And I got to see really cool species and work with them very up close. Um, but I also think all of it was abuse. I really, I'm going to continue to say it. Like, the research world with animals is extremely abusive. Even even mice, you know, the way that mice are kept and rats um, can be extremely abusive as well. Now there's, you know, colony breeding, which I think is more ethical than live-caught breeding or live-caught because a lot of the primates in research are live, were at the time, I don't know if they still are, so allegedly live caught and shipped so that means overpopulation primates were live caught off the street shipped quarantined both sides and then put into research so the way i see it is imagine like chilling on a street being with your family and then being live caught like that's fucking shitty uh there's definitely a lot of karma that needs to be repaid in this country and that and that goes all around, all the fucking around. So the medical industry in and of itself has a lot to account for with this Pluto return in February. But the cost of making medicine, it's not just about money. It's about a lot of things. And I, I, I questioned that throughout this whole process. And when I had my horse, it was a lot easier because it was like, well, I have my baby, you know, I have my horse, I have, uh, and then, you know, after losing him and then just, I lived on a farm at the time on a horse farm, but it just wasn't, it wasn't 
it was like, oh, well, you'll just live on a horse farm and everything will get better. It was like, no, something's changing. And on January 18th, it was Martin Luther King Day, 2010. I was um, done. I quit my job at this primate facility. I mean, there was a lot of horrific stories that come out of that, but I think the ultimate story that comes out of it was I had my horse's ashes, I drove to Shingatake Island, I spread his ashes. Funny enough, my friend who is traveling the world right now sent me some sand from that island. Um, Shingatake Island is an island of ponies in Virginia, Virginia, Maryland, in the Maryland, Virginia facility. Um... In the meantime, I had been applying to jobs in New York City, and I was so suicidal because of the job that I was doing with the primates. It was just so much PTSD, um, and a lot of things like flashbacks were happening. You know, when I was when I was euthanizing. So you know, I would euthanize. We were euthanizing a sheep one day, and I just dissociated from my body, and I was like, that was weird. But I just kept like you know, chopping up the sheep, basically, and, like, being, like, this is really weird, like, I'm not even in my body right now, like, uh, this is crazy, but this is my job, and I need money, and this is a weird job, you know, like, all the weird shit that goes through your brain when you're doing weird shit that's not normal, but yet made normal, because that's, you know, for medical purposes, which makes me question all this shit, (laughs) Um, and why I've been questioning it the whole time and nobody's really listened nor cared. It's okay. It's just that I'm pissed and it's like, I'm pissed because I have a lot of shit that I've seen. I've seen a lot of this and I know that none of these people are good. (laughs) Like none of them are good. There's occasionally a good one, but it's occasional. Um, So why would they think that this motherfucker that's, like, making a lot of fucking money, you know? Anyway, so January 18th, I leave this job. I went, drove to Virginia, drove down to North, one of the Carolinas. Yeah, it was North Carolina. Drove to a swamp in North Carolina called the Great Dismal Swamp, where they have, like, a comet site called Lake Drummond. It's apparently a lake that was created from a comet or a, yeah, a comet. And, um, and apparently part of one of the grid lines for DC grid lines. So I didn't even know that. I just drove there, um, drove across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, which is terrifying to drive across. And, uh, while I was on the bridge tunnel, I got a call from Columbia University Medical Center and they were like, hey, um, we, uh, we have a job for you. We would like to interview you. And I remember at that time being like, with all the shit that I've gone through in the medical industry right now, this is a miracle. And this is what takes me out of this hell. And from there, on the 18th of January, 2010, I was able to leave that abusive lifestyle in Maryland 
and I was able to start a new life in New York City, which I will always be grateful for.